first reading this morning is taken from Romans 8, verses 14 to 17. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's Spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba, Father, for his Spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we are to share in his glory, we must also share in his suffering. The next reading is Matthew 25, starting at verses 31. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit upon his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered in his presence and he will separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you invited me into your home. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then the righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink, or a stranger and show you hospitality, or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will say, I tell you the truth, when you did what did did it to one of the least of these my brothers and sisters, you're doing it to me. Then the king will turn to those on the left and say, Away with you, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his demons. For I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty and you didn't give me a drink. I was a stranger and you didn't invite me into your home. I was naked and you didn't give me clothing. I was sick in prison and you didn't and in prison and you didn't visit me. Then they will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or sick or uh, naked or in prison and not help you? And he will answer, I tell you the truth, when you refuse to help the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were refusing to help me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous will go into eternal life. Well, thank you, Ban, for leading us in that. And thank you, everyone, for your patience with our technical hitches. Sometimes people say that when you have a technical hitch, it can mean that you should stop what you're trying to do in church. But there's another uh, thing which I'm choosing to accept is that when stuff really matters, sometimes the technical stuff gets in the way. So I'm hoping that this is stuff that really matters. So good morning from me. Um, and thanks to Christoph and to the wider church leadership for giving us the opportunity this morning to develop um, our annual Adoption Sunday focus into something a bit bigger. Uh, my name is Roger Cook, and uh, I'm part of the little group that uh, Emma chatted about that's engaged in this work. Um, 
And in some ways, I suppose I'm your Home for Good rep. I volunteer with Home for Good, and I, I wear that hat for stuff in Kirkpatrick. At the outset this morning, I'm keen to dispel any sense that this is a sermon or indeed a service that's just for a chosen few, that it's a niche issue. What I'm about to share is for everyone, regardless of your experience of fostering and adoption. Um, this will be a sermon in two parts with a short video clip in between. I'm just giving you a heads up so you know what to expect. Uh, firstly, we're going to pull the lens back a little bit and look at the wider story of how the church is called to care for vulnerable people in our community. It's nothing new or groundbreaking, but it's something that continues to resonate with me and to challenge me, and I'm hoping this morning it will do the same for you. And part two, which will be much shorter, is just to focus in a little bit on fostering and adoption and why this matters for the church. So before we do that, will you pray with me, please? God, be in my mouth and in my speaking. God, be in our ears and in our hearing. God, be in our minds and in our understanding. God, be in our hearts and in our responding. God, be at work in each one of us, changing us and shaping us so that we can more effectively be the people you've chosen to change the world. Amen. In 2016, the Oxford English Dictionary word of the year was post-truth. You might not be seeing much this morning. If you could just keep praying for lots of dark clouds, this will work much better today. And I'm hoping that nothing really important happens at the bottom of the screen. Uh, in January 2017, the House of Commons uh, um, conducted a parliamentary inquiry uh, into the growing phenomenon of fake news. Fake news is nothing new. Propaganda has been around for a long time. But its recent ascent uh, owes much to uh, the co-option of this phrase by a certain American president. I, I forget his name for now. Um, but it seems that we live in a time when it's increasingly difficult to tell what is authentic and what's not. Of course, sometimes it's really easy to spot. Uh, if you've ever traveled to Nepal or China or India and you've gone to shops looking for some cheap reduced logo uh, branded stuff, you maybe find this sort of stuff. Um, so it's not always easy to tell what's real, um, but that's not always the case. So on a related note, can I ask anyone to tell me, if you can see it, what this is? Let me tell me what that is. Don't be shy, shut it out. Anyone? A hallmark, very good. I don't know if that's what you said, but I'm just going to go with it. Um, so a hallmark is a set of physical, or a set of symbols that's stamped onto something that's made of precious metal. So gold, silver, platinum, palladium. And it proves that an item is, has been tested for purity and that it's passed the test. A hallmark is a guarantee that something is authentic, the real deal. It's an indication of quality. And this morning, I want us to think about the hallmark of authentic Christian faith. When people look at you and me as Christians, as followers of Jesus, how can they tell that we're the real deal, that we're the genuine article? What's the hallmark of pure, true discipleship? This is at the heart of the second passage that Leslie read for us earlier from Matthew 25. So you might want to turn to it together. Um, I can't remember what page it was on, 995 maybe? I don't know, something like that. But uh, Matthew 25 is verse 31. And just as you're turning that up, I'll just tell you that in Matthew's account, this is Jesus' finest, final public teaching uh, 
before the story shift to the Last Supper, Jesus' arrest and his, his uh, crucifixion. So it's the final word uh, that Matthew records of, of Jesus' teaching. It's a mixture in this passage between a parable and some teaching about the end times. The setting for Jesus' story is Christ's second coming and Judgment Day, but the implications are very much about the here and the now. The King Jesus is on his throne, and everyone is there before him. He begins the task of distinguishing and separating people into two groups, and the metaphor is used of a shepherd separating sheep from goats. It's an image with his listeners would be very familiar with, mixed herds, sheep and goats hanging out together. And in the story, the distinction is made between the righteous ones who are blessed and the other ones who are cursed. As we see in this passage, the outcome for each group is markedly different. So what is the criterion used by the king in his process of discernment? Well, it all hinges on how they responded to the vulnerable people around them. It's a wee bit more complicated than that. Jesus actually says that his judgment is based on how they responded to him, to his needs, and the sheep, the righteous ones, are surprised. They weren't aware that they had met Jesus' needs. But in the story, Jesus says this in verse 40. I tell you the truth, when you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you were doing it to me. Somehow in the mystery of God's kingdom, the action of caring for the most excluded, vulnerable, marginalized, forgotten individuals in society translates to an encounter with Jesus himself. Now, I'm conscious that some of you might have been distracted by a verse in a word in verse 40, and it, this is something that's, it comes with the, the territory of this passage. Jesus says, when you did it for one of the least of these, my brothers. And this verse, this phrase, has sparked debate from biblical scholars for centuries. I don't want to get bogged down in that detail this morning. Let me just say that there are three schools of thought about who Jesus is referring to when he says, my brothers. One possibility is that Jesus is limiting the meaning of my brothers to those involved in proclaiming his gospel. Pastors, evangelists, missionaries, Sunday school teachers, youth workers, etc. People who represent the king with a message, and in Jewish tradition, the expectation is they would be treated as if they were the king, welcomed, cared for, supported. And if people didn't do that, then it would be as if they were treating the king in the same way. So that's one way people look at that. Or a second option is that Jesus might mean my brothers to be any Christian in need. And this may seem like the most obvious reading of the text as we see it here. And there's plenty to support this interpretation. But the third and broadest meaning here is that Jesus is intending my brothers to be anyone in need, whether within or without the church. And that certainly resonates with the rest of the Bible, which is jam-packed full of injunctions and commands for God's people to care for the vulnerable. It's one of the central threads of the whole biblical narrative. For example, last year at Harvest, Christoph preached from Deuteronomy 24, where we read, when you're harvesting your crop and forget to bring in a bundle of grain from your field, don't go back to get it. Leave it for the foreigners, the orphans, and the widows. Then the Lord God will bless you in all you do. The same instructions are given for olives and grapes. Proverbs 14 tells us that those who oppress the poor insult their maker, but helping the poor honors him. 
And Ezekiel describes a righteous man as someone who doesn't rob the poor, but instead gives food to the hungry and provides clothes for the needy. If we had more time, I'd love to talk about Isaiah 58, where we're told that true worship, true fasting, is about seeking justice and showing care for the poor and the needy. This major biblical theme isn't just about the Old Testament. We find that all the way through the New Testament too. Hebrews 13 talks about showing hospitality to strangers and remembering those in prison. James describes pure and genuine religion as caring for orphans and widows in their distress. And even the most cursory glance through the gospel accounts reveals that Jesus offered help, healing, and loving care to many people who were on the outside. His concern for those on the margins of society characterized his whole ministry. Indeed, he identified so closely with the downtrodden and outcasts that it wouldn't surprise me if he was happy to refer to them as my brothers. Even if that's a stretch for you, I think it's safe to proceed on the understanding that the clear biblical mandate is to show concern to both those inside and outside the Christian community. So let's move on. In our passage this morning, as elsewhere, Jesus seems to be telling his listeners then and now that the hallmark of authentic discipleship is how they treat marginalized people, those most in need. Feeding people who are hungry, giving a drink to those who are thirsty, showing hospitality to strangers, visiting people who are sick or in prison, seeing a need, meeting a need, caring for the least. This is how things work in God's kingdom. This is what followers of Jesus are called to do. It's these actions, this sort of life that you and I are to lead if we call ourselves Christians. So let me ask you this morning, how are you getting on with that? How's your hospitality been lately? How much of your monthly shopping budget is spent on food and drink for others? When was the last time you visited someone who was sick in their homes or in hospital? Have you ever set foot in a prison? I know that I fall really short on this stuff. Sure, I can write about it, I can talk about it. In fact, that's part of my day-to-day job. And I'm totally convinced by this stuff in theory, but it's easy to hide behind words. When it comes to putting this stuff into practice, it's a bit more tricky. Because caring for vulnerable people is costly. Hospitality doesn't just cost us money. It can also disrupt our comfortable home lives. It may require us to clean and tidy more, or even more of a hurdle, and I speak to myself and my wife with this, it may mean accepting that having a clean and tidy house is less of a priority and welcoming people into the mess of our homes and our lives. Radical hospitality, it seems, requires more loss of control than many of us feel we can handle. But this is the stuff that changes lives. Some of us don't like the smell of hospitals. Uh, Hands up if you don't like the smell of a hospital type person, yes, yeah. Uh, So we avoid them at all costs. But there's every chance that the person in hospital doesn't like the smell of the hospital either. It's just that they have no choice. And if they're, they're, they could be missing out on meaningful interaction and support because we don't like hospitals or because the queue to that car park at the Ulster is just a bit too long. Bringing a traumatized child into your home can be disruptive. Visiting a prison can be scary. Engaging with folk from other countries and other cultures can be confusing. 
but these are all things that transform lives. And not just the lives of those whom we're seeking to serve. The Bible is clear that when we engage with this stuff, something in us lights up. We experience life to the full. Authentic faith, hallmark faith, involves following Jesus to the margins, overcoming our fears, and opening up our lives to others. This is what it means to live life to the full. This is the real deal. It's what we're called to as individual Christians, and it's what we're called to as a Christian community in East Belfast. And that's why Kirkpatrick uh, likes to flag up some of the initiatives that we're involved in as a church, things like Storehouse, Globe Cafe, and Home for Good. That's why we've been given a chance to chat about this stuff here this morning. Uh, so as I, I work for a mission agency, uh, mostly with uh, the Church of Ireland, uh, CMS, and uh, we get to hear great stories from other parts of the world. Uh, we have strong links with the church in South Sudan, and we heard from our partners a couple of years ago um, when the civil war broke out again. Um, there was lots of people fleeing their homes for safety, and our partners in Meridi Diocese told a story about a woman who turned up at the cathedral in Meridi. She had said that when she was leaving her house, her husband shouted after her, when you get to Meridi, go to the church, because there you will find the love of God. Wouldn't it be great if when people in Northern Ireland were in need, they knew they could go to the local church to find help? Isn't that the sort of church we want to be? Where people seek us out because they know that they'll find love, hope, and God's help. So before we leave our Matthew passage, let me address something that sometimes crops up when these verses are read. Growing up in church world in Bangor County Down, it seemed as though there was a particular desire to distinguish between faith and works, and it wasn't always in a helpful way. It was yet another thing that separated us, the Protestants, from them, the Roman Catholics. Here's how the argument sounded. This sheep and goats thing is all very well, but we believe in salvation by faith alone. Surely this passage is telling us that salvation is by works. That sounds a bit, you know, Catholic. Turn with me, if you will, to Ephesians 2. This is familiar stuff again, um, but I think it's a really helpful way to read the Matthew passage. Um, so verse 9 of Ephesians 2, there's a verse here that was used time and time again to emphasize this distinction between salvation by faith and salvation by works. I'm really familiar with it from my growing up in Bangor. You might be familiar with it too. For it's by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. I love that verse. It's hard not to love that verse. There's nothing you can do to earn or deserve God's gift of new life in Christ. There's nothing fake or post-truth about this. It's fundamental to who we are and how we live. But my memory growing up is that we stopped reading there. We read that verse, we made the point, we celebrated the truth that we are saved by grace alone. Verse 10, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Do you see? This is a really helpful way to read the story of the sheep and the goats. You and I, if we are Christians, followers of Jesus, have been saved by grace alone, 
but we've been created, in fact, recreated for the purpose of doing good works. The works don't save us, but they are the outworking of our salvation. They're the proof that we belong to Christ. And what are the works that God has prepared in advance for us to do? Sharing his, hope, his message of hope and healing with a world in need and serving the least among us. The story recorded in Matthew this morning is showing us how to distinguish sheep from goats. The sheep are already sheep. The goats are already goats. The passage isn't an instructive lesson on in how to become a righteous person, a follower of Jesus. It's teaching us how to discern whether or not a follower of Jesus is the real deal. It's challenging us to look at our lives and our priorities and see how genuine they are. But we must heed the warning here. Matthew's writing can be quite stark and quite tricky. If our lives are completely lacking, completely lacking in any evidence of service of others, or if there's not even a desire to serve, that there's something wrong, there's something that needs addressed. And there's another warning, and this is one that I need to hear again and again. The king is the one who decides who is in and who is out. It's not our job to do the discerning. It's not up to us to determine who is sound, who is an authentic Christian. But we have a clue here as to what things really matter in our theology and our Christian expression. So as those who have been saved by grace, we are called to share that grace with a broken world, to look beyond ourselves and to follow our shepherd to those who are lonely and lost. So I pray that the hallmark of genuine faith will be increasingly evident in your life and mine in the weeks, months, and years ahead. We're gonna watch a really short video, which I hope will work.
As I finish up this morning, let me briefly suggest a few reasons why the church, God's people, should care about fostering, adoption, and kinship or family care. Why should we have a particular concern for children in care? Firstly, we should care about these children because God cares for them. Orphans, vulnerable children, are one of the groups that are specifically identified in the Bible as those for whom we should care. Along with widows, foreigners, and those who are poor, these groups are often cited as particular examples. The measure of our faith is how we care for marginalized people generally, but these groups are flagged up for particular attention. Our Heavenly Father has a big heart for people who've experienced pain and brokenness, for those who are lonely and those who are lost. Psalm 68 tells us that God is a father to the fatherless and that he sets the lonely in families. From the cross, Jesus says to to John and points to Mary, this is your mother, and to Mary, he says, this is your son. Jesus puts people in bigger families, which is sort of the second point. Uh, A second reason why I think the church should care about this stuff is because we already have a bigger understanding of family and we have the experience of adoption. Uh, As Jill's reading from Romans 8 reminded us, we have been adopted into God's family. It said, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba, Father. As Christians, we have an understanding and experience of family that goes way beyond genes and blood. You and I have been adopted into God's family. We've been given a new identity, and we've been welcomed into God's kingdom. It's an experience that doesn't deny our past, but it accepts us as we are and gives us a hope for a new future. This this stuff all helps to make it a wee bit easier to make sense of those whose lives have been disrupted and are looking for new families. It makes us especially well-suited to care for these children. Another reason why God's people should care about vulnerable children is really simple. This is an area of significant need in our society, and the church is in the business of meeting and meeting needs and changing lives. Every month, 70 children are taken into the care system in Northern Ireland. That's 70 little lives that have been disrupted or much worse because of circumstances beyond their control. 70 children who need to know that they are valued, loved, and cared for. There's a need for 200 more foster carers in Northern Ireland. There's a need for more people to adopt children and give them them a forever family. Wouldn't it be great if churches could help their congregations to meet this need? Wouldn't it be fantastic if Kirkpatrick was a bigger part of that story? There was a little video that we saw yesterday in the conference, the annual Home for Good conference called The Summit, and somebody was sharing their story of why they got involved in this stuff, and it was because their children, their birth children, asked could they do it and said, if we don't love these children, mommy, who else will? Finally, we should engage engage in fostering adoption and kinship care because these things can make a difference. As that video clip highlighted, I'm not sure if you could see uh, the stats, but children who have experience of the care system are much more likely to end up in other vulnerable groups in our society when they leave care. Many of these children have experienced trauma, chaos, and disruption in their early years. 
and these things can have long-term consequences for their development, their education, their mental health, and their general well-being. A loving, supportive, secure family home has the potential to make a difference, even if it's just a very small difference. This is a way for God's people to stand up and make a change, not just to the individual child, but to society more widely. Catching these children early is part of the story. The stories aren't always positive, and I know that there's folk here in this church who can speak about some of the challenges, pain, and difficulties around fostering and adoption. It's tricky stuff, but there's potential to help these children thrive and grow, even though their hearts are bruised and their lives are scarred. Fostering and adoption isn't about fixing broken children. It's about loving, hurting children. It's not about fulfilling our own needs for family. It's about responding to their needs for acceptance and belonging. This morning, I've deliberately avoided a specific biblical focus on fostering and adoption. Uh, we're hoping we can do that next year. Instead, I wanted to get set fostering and adoption in a wider context of caring for vulnerable people in our society. If you do want to think about this stuff more biblically and practically, I'd really recommend the book that Emma chatted about earlier. Um, I know a fair few folk in church have read this book and found it helpful and impactful. Uh, so I have some copies of that, and you can come and chat to me. We'll work a deal out. Fostering an adoption isn't just a niche private concern for a selected few. This is something that folk can get involved in directly at various stages of life, whether or not they have birth children, whether they're young or old, single or married. Laura and I do short break foster care with two teenagers to help support their full-time foster families. It's a weekend every few weeks. While it comes with certain challenges, it's been a relatively easy way to get involved and get to know this world, to learn the ropes. It's, it's doable. Now, we chose this, this approach to family life because we knew something about the need. We felt that we had some skills to offer and we had a spare room. It's a ministry that we can share in together. And the more we've got involved in the world of foster care, the more convinced we are that this is something of real importance for all of God's people. So we love chatting to folk who have questions about this stuff. And we're thrilled to see some folk here in Kirkpatrick catching a vision for fostering and adoption. But we're keen to see things develop further. Uh, Kirkpatrick's now a home for good church, as Emma was saying. Uh, and I shared last year at this time, there's a few things that we'd love to see. More people here considering whether fostering or adoption could be something for them to explore. That's the first thing. Not everybody can do that, but that's the first thing. The second is that it becomes a bigger part of our conversation, that it's on our agenda, so that we can talk about it, we can support other people here, and we can pray about this stuff. If we talk about it with folk in our work, that could spark a conversation that could change a life. And thirdly, we would love to find ways to support foster carers and adoptive parents in this part of Belfast. So we've started sort of putting out some feelers to how to do that best, and we would love people to pray for that and support that. That's something we will share more about in the new year. Um, but please do pray for folk who care for vulnerable children. This is an area in which we can show the world that we're true, authentic disciples of Jesus, that we follow in his ways and reflect his priorities. The hallmark of our faith is caring for people on the margins. And I know that lots of you here this morning are already devoting your life to serving the least among us. Thank you. Thank you for showing us the way. Be assured that we want to support you pray for you and learn from you.
And for the rest of us, let's ask God to show us who the vulnerable people are in and around our own lives, the people he has given us to love. And may our Abba Father, our loving shepherd, lead us on. Amen.